Acts 4, 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and, all, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Peter 2, 4-6 through As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, by in the sight of God chosen and precious, you, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through, to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. I have a, two brothers-in-law. Uh, one of them is Jewish. He's also a Christian. Um, so he's a completed Jew, a Messianic Jew. When I'm with Frank, I don't really tend to think about his Jewishness. Uh, I've got a, a colleague, a good buddy, Matt, that I work with. He, too, is Jewish. I don't think much. I talked to him. We had a Zoom call the other day for two hours. I don't think much about his Jewishness. Uh, when I talk with Matt, because I'm, I'm a Gentile. I'm a non-Jewish person. It just doesn't really cross my mind that very much. And we're going to talk about Jew and Gentile um, united in Christ together today. And if that doesn't grab your fancy, um, let me just for a moment describe the difference in the way that I was raised and my kids are raised. My, my kids, Jacob and Jenna, now grown, uh, were raised in the church their whole lives, baptized as covenant kids in the life of the church, uh, just like the, the, the ones who just left here, uh, learning the word of God not only at home from mom and dad who read Bible stories to them and prayed with them and sang the songs, but also from the people of the church, right? There's Sunday school teachers, uh, vacation Bible school, all that. That's how they grew up. Um, I didn't grow up that way. I grew up largely outside the church. Um, take too long to tell the whole story, but we never went to church. We weren't even C&E Christians. You know what those are? Christmas and Easter, you know, only the folks you see twice a year. Uh, and then they want to vote in the congregational meeting. No, sorry. Now, now I've gone to meddling. But um, we didn't go to church at all. We didn't say prayers at all. Uh, not before Thanksgiving dinner. Nothing. God was never mentioned in our household. Uh, on top of that, my father walked out. I could tell you that story. I remember the night that he left our family. And I'd probably have to lay down on the benches to tell you more how I feel about that. But... Um, I've worked through it, uh, and my mom had to go back to work. My mother was struggling, 
to support the household. She went back to, uh, she already had gone back to work, but she was going to night school so she could improve her position. So I was what you call a latchkey kid. I don't know if that term is even around anymore, but I grew up as a latchkey kid, uh, meaning that when I got home from school at 3 p.m. or whenever it was, there wasn't anybody there. And so guess what I started doing? All kinds of stuff. Stuff that would curl your hair. It started hanging out with the fellas down the street corner and, you know, went on from there. Use your imagination. But a, a, a little contrast between the way Jacob and Jenna grew up in the life of the church, blessed uh, and cursed, maybe not only with Christian dad and mom, th- thankfully, uh, but with the good people of the church. I didn't have that. Uh, so, so what was the difference between, let's say, my son, Jacob, and me? is he grew up with all the blessings of God's word being read to him, spoken over him, prayed for, for years. And now he had to grow up and embrace that on his own by faith, which, thank the Lord, he did. I tell you what, y'all, I'm rich, not just because I get to live in the church house. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am rich because I have three kids. I count my daughter-in-law. and I, I have three kids, and they all know and love Jesus, and they know and are involved in the church, and guess what? They've seen some of the not-so-pleasant parts of the church uh, through what I happen to do for a living and as a calling, Uh, and and they still want to be around us sometimes, so I'm rich. Well, that has nothing to do with the sermon, Tom. Let's get on with it. All right. All right, so here we go. Let's just read God's Word, and we'll get it, all right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, would you come now and send your Spirit 
your spirit who is among us, your spirit who is resident within all those who have been sealed by him, all those who have union with Christ, would you come now and by your spirit help us to understand your word, Lord, that we might rightly apprehend it, that we might believe it, that we might live it out. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jew and Gentile, um, my brother-in-law Frank, my friend Matt, I don't think about it much, and I'm going to assume that most of y'all here this morning are like me, not Jewish by ethnicity or or, um, religious upbringing or anything. Uh, So Jew and Gentile, who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles were the peoples of the land. They were the peoples of the nations. They were the inhabitants of of Canaan, which was the land that God promised to the patriarch Abraham, but they were pluralistic. They worshipped all sorts of different gods, storm god, rain god, fertility god, on and on it went. And so they were looked down on by the Jews who believed that, you know, God had chosen them. They were the chosen people. They had the temple, they had the prophets, they had the covenants and all those blessings which are detailed in another location by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 verses 4 and 5 or thereabouts. And so they had all those blessings. They looked down on the Gentiles as irreligious, pagan idolaters that were non-Jewish, uncircumcised, uncouth, unclean. They were religiously unclean. They were really not fit to be a part of the people of God. Uh, They considered them dogs because they had received the sign that was given to Abraham and not not nice dogs like we're going to talk about in a minute, but dirty, filthy, loose dogs eating uh, um, carcasses and stuff. Nasty. The Jews thought of the Gentiles as nasty. The Gentiles thought of the Jews as weirdos. They they are monotheists. They only worshipped one God, and they bore, the males did, in their bodies the the mark of the sign of their God, circumcision, the removal of the male foreskin. In the ancient Near Eastern world where public bathing and that kind of thing happened, it was a little more obvious the differences between Jew and Gentile, and they both mutually looked down on and despised each other. The description here that Paul, the most Jewish of men, gives to the church at Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, to Roman soldiers, retired Roman soldiers, and lots, you know, thousands of other people in this city of Ephesus, which was roughly the size of nearby Rockford, you know, tens of thousands, a few hundred thousand people. They had an outdoor amphitheater, uh, you know, a stadium. Um, This very Jewish man writes to these non-Jewish people who now have a mutual interest along with him in Jesus the Christ. And this is how he describes them then and now. Number one, separated, alienated, strangers, no hope, without God, and far off. Have a nice day. Separated. 
uh, bereft of, detached, rendered invalid, alienated, mentioned twice in the passage, both verses 12 and 19, alienated, excluded, estranged from Israel, shut out of fellowship, alienated from the life of God. Strangers, mentioned twice, those same two verses. Foreigners. In the Greek New Testament, uh, the word that's employed there is where we get our word. Sometimes you see it in, I don't know, scholarly writing, a technical term, xenophobic, xenophobia. Phobia, phobos, we know what that is, fear, right? Uh, Xenos is foreigners, strangers, aliens, uh, fear of foreigners. Uh, These people are strangers, enemies, considered to be enemies, without a share in the covenants of promise, the passage says. What, What are these covenants? Well, if we had more time, we'd enumerate them, but the covenant with Abraham, and that included the sign of God's covenant, the mark of circumcision. Perhaps, dare I say, well, the covenant with Noah, right? What did God do with Noah? He hung his bow, his war bow, in the sky so he would no longer be at war with mankind and eliminate mankind by water with with a flood covenant with david king david pictured in the scriptures as a man after god's own heart even with his sins and his foibles really pictured as kind of the ideal king more importantly second samuel 7 the one who had been promised that he would never lack for a man on the throne and he knew that didn't, David knew, that didn't mean just him or his son, Solomon. But he knew that this was promise that the seed, going back to Genesis 3, the promise, first giving of the gospel to Adam and Eve, that the seed, the Messiah, the Savior, would come through his line. He would never lack for a man on the throne. The Gentiles were strangers from these covenants. They didn't grow up hearing the law of God, the word of God. They were far from it. No hope, no hope of salvation. Um, I, I remember my senior year in high school. So, so I started kind of seeing this girl at the end of my junior year, and she was a churchgoer. I went to church for a few weeks with her. Um, I walked an aisle. It was one of those kind of churches, that's the thing you did. I walked an aisle, and I really didn't know what was going on other than I knew I didn't want to go to hell. And I sort of thought of it like a 30-day free trial offer. You know, why not? I mean, you know, I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried the other. You know, what, you know, what, what can it hurt? Try God. Um, but I quit seeing the girl, quit going to church, didn't really know Jesus, had no spiritual input in my life. My senior year in high school, I tried to turn over a new leaf and quit doing all the stuff I was doing. And um, I was really pretty much bored. And the only spiritual input in my life is we said the Lord's Prayer before cross-country matches. I don't know why, but that's what we did. Um, And then graduation came up, and I did what everybody did in southwestern Virginia, went to Myrtle Beach and partied and had a wild time. And I felt very, very guilty as a result. I thought, God has given me my chance to clean up my act, to turn over a new leaf, and now I've gone and blown it big time, and God will never like me. God will never want anything to do with me. 
And I, I share my story with you, first of all, because I know my story better than I happen to know your story. But um, I, I share it with you because there are some of you sitting here today and you're thinking thoughts like that. God, you know, well, maybe he kind of loves me generally because that's his job description. You know, he's God, but God doesn't want me around. God doesn't like me. Pastor, you don't know what I've done. Well, you don't know what I've done. I'm not going to enumerate it. Take too long. Gentiles were described as no hope, having no hope, no hope of salvation without God. Without God, you do know some Greek. You're a Greek scholar, whether you know it or not. Talk about your friend. Oh, my friend is an atheist. A, without. Theist, theos, God, without God. Your atheist friend is one who believes that there is no God. In contrast to your agnostic friend, right? who isn't sure, right? Agnostic, A, without. Gnosis, knowledge, they're, they're not sure. They don't know. They don't know. Your atheist friend believes there is no God. He's wrong. Does God believe in atheists? I don't know. The, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. But your agnostic friend, you know, hadn't made up his mind. These people are described, Paul's saying that, Apart from Christ, they're separated, they're alienated, strangers, no hope. Without God, they're far off. They're at a distance. And then there's a game changer, just like we had last week. You remember last week? It was seven days ago. Uh, uh, You were dead. Not sick, not dying. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But God made you alive together. With Christ. Here we have another game changer. Separated, alienated, on and on. But now, but now in Christ Jesus. And, and, and the first three chapters of Ephesians were, were talking all about our identity in Christ. It's filled with indicatives. This is what God has done. This is what is true of you now. A game changer. Now they've been brought near, verse 13. Under then and now, this is point two in the outline. Brought near, fellow citizens. They're equal part of the people of God. Countrymen with the Jews. The peoples of the land. The peoples of the land that God said don't intermarry with them. Which, by the way, wasn't, this wasn't ethnic cleansing. This was religious so that they would serve the Lord and him only and not have their hearts taken away in serving other gods, the gods of the peoples, the gods of the peoples of the land, which happened time and time again. The game changer, now they've been brought near their fellow citizens. They're members of the household. Jew and Gentile together under the same roof, brothers and sisters in Christ. You have in your uh, bulletin today, you received a, a, a little tract. It's called The Gospel According to a Beagle. And she's over at the church house. She'll be 16 in May. Oh, Maisie Grace, how sweet the hound <laughs> that played some fetch with me. 
She doesn't fetch, unless it's a bone. Uh, so what's the scoop with this? You can read it for yourself. Most people like dogs. Not everyone likes dogs, but they're wrong. Um, <laughs> you can read it for yourself, but here, here's the story. If you're a dog lover, you know, you talk with dog lovers and you say, my, well, my dogs are rescued. Well, my dogs are rescued too. You know, I went down to the, the place and, and got them. Maisie is a lab-to-leash rescue. She was a laboratory animal. At, at this time, there are probably somewhere between 50 to 70,000 beagles being used in labs all across the country um, because they're small, they're docile, and gentle, and on and on. Uh, also, maybe their kidney kind of is fairly close to human anatomy, uh, possibly as well. But anyway, so when we got Maisie from the lab, she was a two-and-a-half-year-old, full-grown adult puppy. She had never been outside the lab. She'd never been on a leash. She'd never seen a school bus or snow or leaves fall or blow around. She'd never felt grass under her feet. And so at that time we had an old rat terrier and he had to teach her how to become a dog, which was really insulting to him because he thought he was a person. He thought we'd ruined our family. We ruined our family by getting a dog. We were a happy family, you know. And uh, so the, the, the point of the gospel according to a beagle is this, is the, the lady that ran this program that they would contract confidentially with the pharmaceutical companies and they get these animals placed out instead of put down, is she told us about radical animal rights groups who would break into the laboratories and take these animals and set them free. Isn't that romantic? Isn't that wonderful? No, that's death. That is certain death. The other th Thursday night, women were here for Bible study. I came down to greet them, and the second time I, I, I came down, I brought something in my hand. You know why? Because I heard the coyotes out in the field. How do you think Maisie would fare against a coyote? How do you think a, a laboratory animal who had never eaten anything except out of a bowl, how do you think that animal would survive by being set free in a field like that field? How do you think that Maisie would do, would fare on Kishwaukee Interstate Speedway, drag race? <laughs> how, how do you think she'd do? So is that freedom, my friends? No, that's certain death. And the point of this is, um, I, I, I've heard it said that freedom isn't doing whatever you want to do. Freedom is having the power to do what's right. And so what Maisie needed was not to be set loose in a field. Maisie needed a new master, a new household, new provision. And there's limits with that provision. She's under my roof. She's under my protection. But there's some things she's not allowed to do. Um, you, you can read it for yourself. Members of the household. Now she's living the high life. You know, we've had her for, do, do the math, let's see, uh, going on 14 years, uh, 13. 13, 14 years, whatever. She's living the high life. She's eating my food, sleeping in my bed. Well, not over at the church house. She's not. But uh, she, she slept in bed with my daughter for 11 years. You get the idea. Members of the household. Spared from the slaughterhouse, living it up in the church house. I mean, or should I say in the penthouse? Um, <laughs> what was killed on the cross? Verse 16. What was killed on the cross? What was put to death? Jesus. 
This passage speaks of the blood of Jesus. I'll probably forget to say this later, so here's, you, you want an application from the sermon, read Hebrews 9 and 10. You want to understand the blood of Christ, read Hebrews 9 and 10. Okay, I told you how I grew up, outside the church, biblically illiterate, didn't know famous Bible stories or Bible songs, didn't know how to look up a verse, anything, went to church for a little while, my junior year in high school with a blonde-haired, blue-eyed gal, interest wasn't altogether spiritual, but it got me there. And I didn't know Jesus, but I learned one Bible verse while I was there. From Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, that is forgiveness of sins. And I didn't get it. Now, for covenant kids like Jacob and Jenna, oh, that's second nature. They know exactly what it's talking about. But for me, a stranger, an outsider, a foreigner, somebody who was far off, I didn't know. I had seen cowboy movies where they become blood brothers, best friends, you know, and they, they spit or whatever, and they, uh, they cut, cut the wrist and tie a leather strop around it and become blood brothers. Is that how you join this club? That's what I thought, guys, going to church. What do you mean about the shedding of blood? Blood's dirty. Blood's gory. Christians are always singing about blood. Like it's beautiful or something. No, no, no wonder the early Romans thought that uh, they were uh, talking about cannibalism. What is all this blood and gore? The beauty of our faith is the blood of Christ representing his life poured out for you and for me. Lest I forget to say this, uh, next week we've got communion. It's the Lord's Supper. Prepare your hearts this week. We understand the gospel through the Lord's Supper as well, and we'll celebrate by coming to table together next week as well. The blood of Christ, his flesh, verses 13 and 14, his body brings us near to God, reconciles both Jew and Gentile to Christ. To reconcile is to bring to harmony, right? Talk about a married couple, the Browns, the Smiths, the Joneses, whomever. You hear about them? Oh, yeah, I heard they split up. Well, well no, they separated. They, they, they separated, but... Um, I heard that they're trying to reconcile. They're, they're seeing a counselor, or they're, they're trying to get back together. They're trying to reconcile. Two parties who are at odds, you're trying to bring them back together. Both sides. Reconciled to God in fulfillment of Isaiah 57, 19. What else was killed on the cross? Jesus was killed on the cross. If you say Jesus at church, it's always the right answer, right? Um, there's a second thing and a third thing too. The second thing in particular, hostility. Verses 14 and 16, the hostility was killed on the cross. What hostility? Twofold. Our hostility toward God. We talked last week about being by nature children of wrath, enemies of God at the right time while we were still enemies. Christ died for us. That hostility was killed on the cross, but also what Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 2 is the hostility between Jew and Gentile where both sides looked down on each other. Both sides considered the other lesser. Now in Christ, that's done away with. And there's something else abolished too, but I'm not going to go there for time. 
Uh, Christ, our cornerstone. Let's talk about this for a moment. Christ, our cornerstone. Cornerstone. Cornerstone is mentioned in both of those passages that Josie read for us in Acts 4 and 1 Peter 2. I didn't have room to put them on the back of your outline, so you could look them up on your own and would do well to see that. Both of those talk about Christ, our cornerstone, in fulfillment of Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 28, Christ, our cornerstone. What does a cornerstone do? A cornerstone holds together two, two walls and makes them so everything else will be true. We have a cornerstone in this building. It's the cornerstone outside in the foyer right over there um, for Kishwaukee Community Church from over at the Condon Road location. And what's inscribed on it is for Christ and his kingdom. And I believe that this church still stands for that, for Christ and his kingdom. But Christ, our cornerstone, it's through him that all the other walls are trued up. Jew and Gentile together. In Acts 4, Peter is preaching in Jerusalem, and he's preaching about Christ being rejected, crucified, resurrected, and that salvation is found in no one else. There's an exclusivity about our faith that people outside the church don't like. And it's not just there in Acts under Peter's preaching. Jesus said so himself too, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not through going to church, not through trying harder, not through cleaning up your act, not through turning over a new leaf, not through trying to improve the moral fiber of your life to make yourself acceptable to God. No, through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, of Jesus the Christ. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it talks about how we are being built up as living stones. Jew and Gentile together are being built up together into a holy habitation for God. And so as the cornerstone, Christ is either the foundation of your life or a stumbling stone. You'll find him offensive. And when we talk about the exclusivity, salvation in no other name becomes a fork in the road. Will you have Christ as the foundation for your life, friend, or do you take offense at this? Do you stumble over who Jesus is? So we've got some takeaways this morning. Head, heart, and hand is our little rubric we're using. Head to know, heart to be, hand to do. Uh, Head to know. We have unprecedented access, verse 18. Unprecedented access. Jesus brings us to God. We've been brought near. Unprecedented access. Uh, I I don't care who is meeting with me. I could be meeting with the session. I could be meeting with any one of you. I could be meeting with spouses trying to reconcile. Well, maybe for that reason I'd keep my family out. But I tell you, if my my wife and daughter, whom you met a couple of weeks ago, who might be back in April, if, if they came here and I was in a meeting with somebody, but if they arrived, they're in. They, they get to come right in, in the middle of our meeting. Sorry, <laughs> they're coming in. They have access to me at almost any time. 
close, intimate interaction with God. One source I consulted calls this the friendly relation with God whereby we are acceptable to him and have assurance that he is favorably disposed toward us. And this is a very Trinitarian passage, is it not? We've been talking about Christ all along. And here we see it's access to the Father through the Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Access. And, and Paul's original audience, the church there at Ephesus, they, are, they were charged to remember this. This is the first time, Ephesians 1 through 3, full of indicatives. This is what God has done and who you are. No imperatives, no commands, no to-do list. Here's one, the only one in the first half of the book. Remember. Remember. Why should they remember that they were estranged, far off, no hope, without God? Why should they remember that? To keep them humble in the church. Keep Jew humble towards Gentile and vice versa. It's the only imperative in the first half of the book. Be mindful. Be humble. It's, it, in English, it's in there twice. In Greek, it's, it's once and implied the second time. The only command in the first half of the book. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Un- un- unprecedented access. He's broken every barrier down. What does that mean? Now, I'm not an expert in the Jerusalem temple and all that, but I know this much. Access to God before Jesus was very different. Access to God you had to be careful, and particularly for the Gentiles, right? There was a place called the Court of the Gentiles where the peoples of the land, the peoples of the nations, the sojourner, the alien, the stranger could become a proselyte. They could become, they could hear about Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true God. There was a court of the Gentiles, this outer court, and there was a wall. It was about four and a half feet high and had a sign upon it, and it talked about, don't go beyond here if you're a Gentile upon pain of death. And so it was in this outermost court, the court of the Gentiles. What did did Jesus see going on there? He saw the money changers doing their thing, right, and charging exorbitant rates to switch it out for the right money. And that made Jesus mad. Why? And what, what, what does Jesus say? He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Not about making a buck, right? But that's not all that Jesus says. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for whom? For all the nations. For all the peoples. You're making it hard to get to God. That's what Jesus took umbrage at. So there was the court of the Gentiles. Then there, there was the court of women for the Jewish women. And then there was the place where the men could go. And then into the, the, the temple itself. And then into the Holy of Holies. And who could go into the Holy of Holies? If you read the Old Testament, you've seen this. Only the high priest could go, only once a year, and only with blood. Read Hebrews 8 and 9. If you don't understand this stuff, and when you read the Old Testament, and like me, you're like, what is all the blood and gore and the animals and the carcasses, and what's all this stuff? Read Hebrews 8 and 9, and it will make sense to you. Because Jesus has come once for all, and he's the perfect sacrifice for sin for all time. And so the veil is rent, that, that thick rug 
in the Holy of Holies. When Christ died on the cross, the veil was rent from the top down. Access, unprecedented access. Men, women, Jew, Gentile, ushered into the very presence of God. Remember in Esther, where Esther summons her courage, chapter 3, and she goes in before the Persian king, and a woman wasn't supposed to, even a queen wasn't supposed to go unannounced when the king was holding court. And so she gulped and swallowed and prayed, fasting and prayer with her maidens, and she goes for it. And what does he do? He extends the golden scepter to her. You know, it, may, it, may, it could, could be off with her head. But it wasn't. It was, come on in, my dear. What, what can I do for you? And we have this kind of access to our God. Heart. That's head to know about your access. Heart to be. We can feel a sense of belonging in the body of Christ. My dog runs that house. I do what she says. When she says it. A sense of belonging. Um, so years ago, I discipled some guys when I was in campus ministry. This is Auburn University, and we kind of took turns being in, being in each other's weddings for a few years. And uh, me and some of the guys, we were, I don't think we were groomsmen. I think we were ushers, you know, kind of one step down from groomsmen, right? Um, and the wedding, he was marrying a gal. Uh, you know, these were Alabama guys, and he was marrying a gal out in Kansas, and so we did road trip, and we got a bunch of us in a van, and we did this hundreds of miles road trip, and uh, this was a long time ago. I don't think we had a cell phone. I think it was before cell phones. I know it was before cell phones, and, uh, and, and somehow we were in contact with them, and we, you know, we were driving hundreds of miles to participate at some level in this wedding, and we knew that, you know, Friday night, there's a meal, right? There's the uh, rehearsal dinner, and Something had gone on with the guest list, and there was some question of where were you going to stay and where were we going to be fed? Were we included? You know, we're busting our tails to get here for John. And, and John, who's a missionary kid, grew up in Kenya. He had to know him, kind of zany fellow. Um, finally, we got it clarified, and somebody was on the phone with him, and, and, and he said, you're in, you're in, you're all in. And that's what we needed to hear. That we were included. We were welcome. And by God's grace, through faith in Christ, we have a privileged place in God's new community with security and protection. You belong in Christ. You're in. Doesn't everybody want a place to belong? That's why there's a bar named Cheers. That's why people join fraternities or sororities or social clubs or whatever. People want to belong, and in Christ you do. And so let's live at peace with one another. The last point, hand, to do. Let's live at peace with one another. If I have union with Christ, and I do, and you have union with Christ, then we are united to each other in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. Then, the original meaning, it was about Jew and Gentile. What about now? Black and white, male and female, Democrat and Republican, Android and iPhone, <laughs> city dwellers and country folk, 
in Christ. There can be unity. The two shall become one in him. One of my friends likes to say we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. The NIV application commentary says this, if we remember the church is the people, several implications follow. Church is no longer perceived as a program that some people put on for others to watch. The people are participants joining together to worship and have fellowship with God who is present with them as a group. Ministry is for everyone, not merely the clergy. The people are the temple in which God dwells. Value is placed on people. Sometimes the impression is given that people are dispensable as long as the building is maintained and the programs keep going. The average church in the United States devo- devotes the majority of its funds to, building and, uh, to buildings and internal operations. What if we invested in people as much as in our buildings and systems? He himself is our peace. He makes peace between people. And he came and he preached peace. Let's pray. The gospel, the good news, is a person. And we, who all were once Christ-less, kingdom-less, God-less, and hopeless, now have in Christ our God and King, eternal hope. We belong. We're in. We're members of your household. Thank you for adopting us into your family, for sending the Spirit rushing into our hearts by which we, sons and daughters of God Most High, cry out to you, Abba, Father. And Lord, this day, as we uh, pray and seek your face. We ask that you administer your grace uh, to us and through us and, and to our community, that you would help us to include more people, more people who need a place to belong, a sense of belonging. There may be folks in our midst, but there certainly are folks who are at home today who, who wouldn't come or in our neighborhoods who are, who are captive to, to their sins, to addiction of one sort or another and who feel like you'll never love them or if you do in some general sense that you don't really want to have anything to do with them. Help us to hold out the hope of Christ to a world in need. We thank you, Jesus, for being our protection, our provision, our security, for giving us a family and causing us to belong. Amen.